All right, now there's a common set of preacher jokes. And I don't mean jokes preachers tell. I mean jokes you tell about preachers. I saw one, I saw one this week. It was a, a meme on social media. It was a pastor. It was a young guy sitting back in a papazon chair, let, relaxed with his hands behind his head. And this was, the, this was the title. Pastor, he's still not sure how he landed this sweet job where he only has to work one hour a week. And in my house, there are other pastor jokes that sometimes come out in my more cynical moments, like those times when my kids aren't listening to me. Parents, that ever happened to you where you feel like you're talking and no one's listening? And so I snarl at them. Hey, I can do this for another 45 minutes. I'm a preacher. I'm used to people staring at me and not listening. Now, in lots of ways, that portrays my disappointment in the fact that you don't always seem to heed my words as quickly as I'd like or in exactly the right ways, but, but maybe more than that, what it does is it, it reveals my own heart, that having not only preached the word but heard the word preached, I see how slow I am to listen. And so I'm encouraged as we jump into 1 John. Encouraged, on the one hand, because we're going to see in this church is a church that needs a word of encouragement, but it comes with correction. All right, so, so you see how that's an encouragement to me? If they didn't listen to John, then it shouldn't surprise me that it takes you a long time to listen to me. But actually, more than that, what the apostle does is he shows his own need for the gospel, his own sinfulness. And so this passage, and, and this summer as we look at, at John's letter, it will be an encouragement to me as a pastor. If John struggled to be heard so that he had to keep repeating the same themes over and over again, then maybe I need to learn a little more perseverance and persistence. But it should be an encouragement to you if you're a, a new believer, as you feel like maybe there's, there's so much in your life that's in disarray. There's so much that needs to be, you don't even know where to start cleaning up the mess. Then this will be an encouragement to you. God is the God who forgives our sins. Or maybe an encouragement to you if you're a Christian, and yet you know you're caught in the lie of your own sinfulness. Yeah, you can polish a nice exterior, but you know that if, if people weren't really looking, what they'd find. There's hope for you here. There's also hope for you as, an, as, as a growing believer and encouragement that as you come to understand the gospel, then, then you begin to share the gospel more quickly and more readily that you come alongside and help encourage others. But maybe that doesn't describe you. Maybe you're, you're saying, but I, I, don't even, I don't even know if I'm, if I'm a Christian. I don't even know what I, what I believe. I just feel like there's so much that's left to figure out. Then there's a, a challenge and a hope offered to you today. Because the reality of Jesus's arrival shines light into your life. And so we're going to look at this passage. We're just going to kind of break it into two parts, and the, the outline is simple for you. First, we're going to look at the truth announced, and then the truth applied. The, first, the, the truth that's announced to us here in this little prologue, the first four verses. The apostle describes for us that which was from the beginning. He, he, he describes that he, he, was, he was there. He, 
heard Jesus speak. In verse 1, he says, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, which we have touched with our hands. He's saying, as an eyewitness, I'm announcing this to you. And you notice there's one guy who wrote this, but he writes it in the plural. He doesn't say, I saw. He says, we have heard, we have seen, we have touched. Because John is recognizing that, that while this is written likely at the end of the first century, one of the last parts of the, the Bible to be written for us, John is likely the last of the apostles still alive. The others have all given their lives. He remembers that he speaks with that apostolic authority, the authority of those who saw the resurrected Christ. And he speaks of the life. Verse 2, the life who appeared. Not merely some abstract description, not simply a philosophical idea, but a real person. Because John had walked alongside Jesus. John had served with Jesus. And so he offers to us this hope. He, he, he proclaims this good news. And, and actually, these, these, these first three verses here, it's really a tangle in the original Greek. It's, 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 in all of John's writings, it's, it's probably the most complicated of sentences. Now, it's, it's easier to read because translators have helped us a bunch by putting the main verb back into verses 1 and 2, that we proclaim this good news. We announce it to you, but it actually doesn't come until verse 3. It, it, it's almost as if John is so excited that he just starts starts spewing it out, that, that this is what we've heard from the beginning. We've seen it. We've touched it. We've, we've, the life appeared. He's, he's announcing this good news. And think of how radical this is. God himself stepped down from heaven onto earth. He's talking to us about the reality of the incarnation, that the, the eternal God has become a human. Here before us, we could touch, we could see, the life appeared to us. And so John says, we proclaim to you in verse 2, we proclaim to you eternal life. There is good news, the announcement of eternal life. And, and that's a familiar phrase for the Apostle John. We saw back in chapter 3 of his gospel earlier this, earlier this year, when we speak about the, the gift of eternal life that's given to us. And, and perhaps it, it's just the way we use the English word eternal. We tend to think of that only in terms of length of time. So we limit eternal life to its duration. And so that's true. Eternal life lasts forever. But if we only think of it in terms of how, how many seconds tick away on the clock, then we've missed the real concept that John is giving to us. Because it's not about eternal life begins when you die, when you physically die, then you get eternal life and it goes on. No, what he's saying is this is a gift given to you right now. Eternal life is a present reality for the believer because he's not merely describing how long it will last. He's describing the beauty, the magnitude, the, the, the wonder of the gift, the spiritual nature of what has been given to us. This is eternal life, life that had to have been given to us by another, life that came to us from Jesus. And so he announces this good news to us. He repeats in verse 3 those, those same verbs, we have seen, we have heard. And he tells us why he announces it to the church. So that you also may have fellowship with us. That you may be in relationship with us. This is very personal for him. But then he presses it further. It's not merely so that you and I can be in relationship. 
It's so that we can be in relationship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John is announcing the truth that you can have a personal relationship with God. That's a radical claim. Now, it might feel pretty normal because that's the kind of thing we, we assume as Christians. But you see John's excitement in just in throwing this out to us. And, and so that he says in verse 4, we write this. I'm telling you all of this. You need to hear this so that our joy would be made complete. Now, he could have just said your joy, speaking only of, of what the, the gift that he's giving to them, that he's proclaiming to them. But he actually says our joy. Because for John, as he's come to understand this good news, you're seeing his, his pastoral care and concern for these churches. As he comes to understand this good news, he realizes this is good news that has to be shared. Okay, now, to, to be fair, First John is not technically evangelistic, meaning it's written to people who already believe. So it wasn't written like the gospel of John was, so that people who had never heard it would hear the good news. That's just what evangelistic means. It just means good news. And so the, 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 the gospel of John was written so that people would first come to believe. But, but don't you see what John is saying? As soon as you start talking about what Jesus did, Jesus, the life, appeared. Then you realize this. other people have to hear this. The only way for John's own joy to be complete is for other people to hear this gospel and respond to it. Now, all of this language of seeing, of touching, it, 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 it might make you think, well, I think if I could have been there, then I'd believe. But we're just going to take his word for it? Now, now that, that kind of thinking wouldn't surprise the Apostle John. Because back in his gospel, he reminded us of another time that this happened, at the, the end of John's gospel in chapter 20. You know the story well. Jesus appeared to his disciples. After his resurrection, he appears with them in the room, except that there's one guy missing. Now, if you've read through John's gospel, you remember his name. It's Thomas. And what does Thomas say? He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, unless I put my finger where the nails were, unless I put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. See, what Thomas is saying is, the resurrection, if it's true, it changes everything. I, I would need to see it. And so what happens? Well, John tells us that a week later, Jesus again appeared to his disciples. But Thomas is there. Jesus announces peace, and then he, he, he says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. But at that point, does Thomas need to touch him to know? No, we have the, the high point of John's gospel, the announcement of the glory of Jesus when Thomas replies, my Lord and my God. And Jesus tells him, "Blessed, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, there is a, a blessing. You and I have everything that we need announced to us by the eyewitnesses who were there. We have the truth which has appeared. Jesus himself has appeared. And, and, and you still might think, yeah, but Thomas only believed after he saw. 
So you, you, still, might, you still might want to check, but, but, but what, did, what did he actually have to see? Not merely the physical appearing of Jesus, but the spiritual reality of what that means. And, and, and go back with me to verse 1, because it, it seems that, that John makes an unnecessary repetition. He says, he speaks about that which we've heard, that which we've seen with our eyes, that which we've looked at, and that which we've touched. Okay, well, that's four statements, but it only covers three senses, right? Because you don't need to say, I've seen it with my eyes, and I've looked at it. You can't see it unless you've looked at it, John. But, but when you go back in, and, and commentators point this out, that the, the language that he's using there is that he physically saw, but then he had to come to spiritually understand. To look at it was to reflect on the truth of what he was seeing. See, to say, I wouldn't believe it unless I saw it, means you're, you're saying, not only would I need to see the physical Jesus right here in the flesh before me, I would need the, the curtains of heaven thrown back so that I could see the spiritual reality behind it. You would need not merely to see the physical, but to understand the spiritual. So what would it really take for you to believe? What if God himself appeared? That's exactly what John is telling us has happened. Everything you need has been given to you. See, the announcement is made by God. The life appeared. This is not something that we could have figured out. John is saying this is a message that he heard and then he spoke it. It's a message, it's something that he saw before he could announce it. It came from God and is given to us. Okay, so that's the truth announced. And then we see what he does then in the next six verses, verses 5 through 10, is the truth applied. And he begins, verse 5 kind of serves as a, as a hinge or a turning point for this chapter. Although remember, the chapter numbers were added much later. John didn't put those in himself. And, and actually, 1 John, it, every commentary that I opened up outlines 1 John differently. And they all actually say this is virtually impossible to outline because John keeps just circling back on the same themes. It'd be like recording a conversation and then trying to go back and put it in outline form that your, you know, your English teacher would be happy with. Your English teacher would say point 2A and point 3A are exactly the same point. And John would say, well, yes, of course they are. That's something that you need to be reminded of. It's an encouragement you need to hear again. And so, so we could stop at verse, we could go all the way to chapter 2, verse 2, or we could, we, we, we've just broken it down by by chapter, because really what, what John is going to continue to do is apply the truth of what he announces here throughout the rest of this book. But look again at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from God and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God is light. Now that's a simple enough image that, that, that even the, the children in our midst would understand it. They, 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 you know what it's like to walk into a, a dark room and turn on a light. But it's a big enough, powerful enough image that we, we realize we would never fully understand it. It shows us something of the enlightenment that God gives to us, that, that he shows us the truth. The truth is, is given to us. We can see in the light, but it shows us something of the holiness and the grandeur and the majesty of God. 
that the best description John can come that's been given to him is that God is light. And so it's a simple enough image. And, and we would remember when we read back in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes at night and Jesus tells him about the danger of living in darkness. Jesus doesn't just mean you could stub your toe, so flip on some lights. What he's saying is darkness has a spiritual, a moral dimension in the Bible. And so to walk in darkness is to live by sin, but in God there is no darkness at all. God is light. See, the message for John begins with the character of God. This is a God-centered message because it was announced by God, and it's about God. Yes, he's going to tell us all about the problems that we have, but he doesn't start there. He starts with where the truth begins, with God who is truth, God who is life, God who is light. And then he spends these next few verses, or really the rest of this letter, and we'll, we'll explore this over the coming weeks, looking at the, the application, the implications of God's character in our lives. All right, now I'm going to try and kind of summarize and, 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 and move us through this. But, but, but essentially what he does is in these next several verses, he uses conditional statements, if. If this, then this. But three of them are negative about the things that we do wrong. But thankfully, sandwiched in between are two positives. So the even verses, 6, 8, and 10, are what's wrong with us. Okay, so look at verse 6 with me. If we claim to have fellowship with God, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. So, so there's a, a danger John sees in his churches of denying the sinfulness of sin, of sort of downplaying it, of being okay still walking in darkness and yet claiming to be in relationship with God. See, because my goal isn't that today you'll apply this sermon to the person sitting next to you. My goal is that you'll apply this to yourself. See, because we're really good at applying it to other people because we can measure their sin pretty easily. But we sort of measure our own sin and by justifying it, by making it smaller, by, by making it not seem as big a deal, by, by trying to keep it hidden. And yet, what have we done if we live in sin and yet claim to be in fellowship with God, we're lying. We're not living by the truth. Now, okay, now verse 8, the next of these negative statements. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. All right, now, it, it's possible that what, the, the, what was being taught, wrongly, falsely taught in these churches was that once you become a, a believer, you no longer sin. I mean, maybe they meant from birth you weren't sinful, but it seems more likely that the, the, the problem here is that, that if you claim to be without sin, well, then you're just deceiving yourself. And again, this is, this is the way that we're so good at justifying ourselves. Or, or maybe you've heard the, those common kinds of expressions, the common understanding that, well, people are generally pretty good. There's, there's, a, there's a spark of goodness within, within all of us. We just need a little bit of help to get by. But that's not a biblical understanding. That's a deception. John is saying, if you claim to be without sin, 
You're just fooling yourself. Because no one, not even the great apostle, at the end of his life, not even John, who was there on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw the glory of Jesus revealed during his earthly ministry, not even Jesus, not even John, who witnessed the miracles of Jesus or who was there at the foot of the cross, the only of the disciples that were there, not even John, who, who outran Peter to get to the tomb. And, and that's maybe just a little hint that John is on the younger end. That's why he lives so much longer. It's, it's not that he was all that much faster. It's just you've got a young guy racing against a much older guy in Peter, and so he gets there first. But it's Peter who goes into the tomb, John tells us. John, who was there to see the resurrected Christ, who saw him ascend into heaven, who was given apostolic authority, John says, do not pretend to be without sin. Stop trying to convince yourself or convince others you're better than you really are. Because to do so, verse 10, to claim that you've, never, that you've not sinned is to make God out to be a liar. Not only are you lying and lying to yourself, but you're, you're, you're trying to enlist God in this falsehood. And so where does God need to shine his light of truth into your life? I mean, what's the, what's the place that if you and I were sitting together, having a pastoral conversation, you would want to avoid me talking about? Or you'd be careful to sort of steer the conversation. You'd even maybe have some, some prepared answers that would, that would help make it easier to, to get away from this. What would you do if you were sitting with the apostle? Or if you were sitting with Jesus? It's because you and I, We've lived under the lie that if we keep our sin in the darkness, then we'll be free from it. See, now we might think that, that, well, this will work. If I just keep it all hidden, well, then nobody else will know. And so I won't have to deal with the accusations or the shame or the embarrassment or the hurt that I've caused others. So if I can just keep it hidden, I'll be free. See, but that's a lie. Because that's a weight that drags you down. You know that you're living in darkness. You know that shame has a stranglehold on you. What sin lurks in that darkness? Or what pride tempts you to think that you're, well, I'm really not all that bad. See, because the problem with my own sin is that I tend to compare my sin not to the purity of God who is light. I tend to compare my sin to the other people around me. So, you know, come hang out with me at a hockey game. And you hear them talk, my teammates, and you'll think, well, Kevin's not all that bad. Although the, the referee didn't agree. I did get kicked out of a game a couple of games ago. There were less than two minutes left, so the two-minute minor just meant I had to, you know, I deserved it, to be fair. See, but, I, but I, tend to, I tend to sort of compare myself to people that I would put in a category that's, well, it's worse than I am. And so if I can sort of minimize my sin, or if I can keep my sin hidden, then I'll be okay. But to, to claim fellowship with God, while still pursuing sin, while still holding on to sin, is to make God a liar. Now, thankfully, that's not all that's in this passage. I skipped verses 7 and 9 so that I could lump 6, 8, and 10, the negatives, together so that we could take these positive conditional statements together. Look at, look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light, 
as God is in the light. Then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. You hear that good news? What is the real path to freedom? To step into the light. To let the the truth of who God is expose your sinfulness. That's what verse 9 is saying. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive our sins. He will purify us from all unrighteousness. It's a conditional statement, but notice upon whom the condition is placed. It is not it, it does not say if God is in a good enough mood. If you catch him on the right day, then he might forgive you. No, the conditional is placed on you, on me, if we confess our sins. Then there is a guarantee of what comes. Next, the conditional is because you may not be willing to confess your sin. You may decide your sin feels better to you than the forgiveness that God offers. You just can't deal with light being shined in those kind of places. But the guarantee is if we confess, God is faithful and just. God will forgive our sins. To confess our sins is to call our sins what God calls them. To admit that they are sins, to acknowledge the truth of our brokenness, that we are sinners who have lived in darkness, but light has appeared. The life is here. And notice how how John speaks. He speaks not merely in, in the abstract. Yes, he does use big theological words like faithful and righteousness. He speaks about being purified from our sins, but but notice how personal it is. Look again at verse 7. He speaks of the blood of Jesus. The blood which purifies us from all sin. The personal love of God revealed to us in the death of Jesus. And this is not an abstraction, not merely a a hymn that, that, that John would sing. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He stood at the foot of the cross and watched the nails pierce the flesh of his Savior. Jesus loved you that much, that his blood was shed for you. See, the way in which you can let go of sin and holding on to it and keeping it in the darkness is when you realize, he did that for me. You step forward with open hands to confess your sins, to step into the light and see the truth of who God is and what he has done for us. When you see the love that God has shown, the eternal life that is offered, the hope of the gospel that is found in the blood of Jesus, our Savior. That is our hope. That it is through the blood of Jesus that God purifies us from all sin. John Patton met opposition when he announced his plan to go as a missionary to the New Hebrides. It's an archipelago of islands in the South Pacific, now called Vanuatu. But he, he had spent 10 years of fruitful ministry as a pastor in Glasgow. But he was prepared to leave it all behind for the mission, the purpose of Christ. Another pastor tells us his story. He says, one man objected, the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. Okay, now this wasn't just merely the, the, 
you know, the paternalistic viewpoint of, of a man in Scotland. It wasn't merely the, the, colonial, the colonial ideas of, of a European. No, actually, the first two missionaries who had gone to the New Hebrides just a couple of decades before were killed within moments of setting foot on the islands and were eaten by the cannibals. And so when this man says, the cannibals, the cannibals, it's a legitimate concern. Well, this was Pastor Patton's response. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave and there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me if I am eaten by worms or if I am eaten by cannibals. Well, that's a pretty bold answer. And so Patton went. He believed that God was leading him to the mission field, and it did cost him much. He buried a wife and an infant child on the island. He remarried and returned to the islands, preaching the gospel, this time on the island of, of Aniwa, where eventually many would come to know Jesus Christ. And so Patton reports the, uh, the unspeakable joy of sharing this good news with others. And he, and he, he says that, that moment when, when the believers, these new believers were gathered as a church and he was able to celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion, the fellowship that we had together one another and with God. He, he, he describes his experience. He says, for years we had toiled, we had prayed, we had taught for this. At the moment when I put the bread and wine into those dark hands, once stained with the blood of cannibalism, but now stretched out to receive and partake the emblems and seals of the Redeemer's love, in that moment, I had a foretaste of the joy of glory that well nigh broke my heart to pieces. I shall never take, taste a deeper bliss till I gaze on the glorified face of Jesus himself. Jesus has appeared. His blood shed for us. As you take the cup in your hand, it is your blood-stained hands of sinfulness. And yet you find forgiveness because the blood of Jesus purifies us from all our sins. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. He will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the hope of this gospel, the joy and the excitement with, with which John, your servant, speaks. Lord, we thank you for the display of love we find in the, in the reality of Jesus' arrival here. But Lord, more than that, we thank you for the grace which is poured out for us in the death of our Savior, his body broken, his blood shed. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us our sins as we come to you, confessing our sins. Lord, prove yourself to be faithful and just. Show us the depth of your love. Lord, we come because of the grace that has been given to us in Jesus our Savior. Amen.